There was a man who rarely ever prayed. In fact, he thought prayer was pretty boring. He was not a spiritual man. He didn't like to go to church. In fact, he was out hunting on a Sunday. And as he was hunting, climbing up over a cliff, he pulled himself up on a ridge and was face to face with the brown bear. Eyeball to eyeball. The bear growled ferociously. The man was startled, fell backwards down the hill that he climbed. His gun fell out of his hand. He broke his leg. He knew there was no escape. That bear came bounding up to where that man stood and just was growling and drooling over him. And the man started praying. He said, Lord, I'm not really a praying man, but would you please do something? I'll do anything. I'll pray every day. I'll go to church. I'll even go to 8 o'clock service at Calvary. If you would just (laughs) please make this bear a Christian bear. That's what he prayed. Well, as soon as he said that, the bear stopped, fell down to his knees, folded his paws, (laughs) bowed his furry head, and started talking out loud, saying, Lord, Thank you for this meal that I'm about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. There are predictable responses whenever you mention prayer. One response is guilt. I mean, what Christian doesn't think that he or she ought to pray more than they do? And they feel guilty about that, at least from time to time. A second reaction when you mention prayer is fear, especially if you have to pray in front of somebody. It's the fear of my public prayer within this group may not sound as spiritual or as emotional or laced with as many scriptures as some of the others in the group. A third response is boredom. To most people, prayer, frankly, is boring. It's easy to prove that. Just go to a prayer meeting and see how many people come. A prayer meeting is the least attended meeting of any church meeting at any time, unless, of course, there's a national crisis. Then there's the need to pray all of a sudden, at least for that week. The problem isn't really with prayer as much as with us. I believe that. I don't think the issue is that prayer is boring. I think, frankly, we can be boring. And what I mean by that is that we're creatures of habit. We easily fall into certain predictable patterns when we pray. We pick up phrases that have been passed on to us as we've heard others pray, and then we pass them on to others when we pray. And so our prayers often sound like reruns. We lack the spontaneity. We just start repeating ourselves. And if you think praying is boring, like listening to somebody else's prayer, think how God feels. He listens to it all day long from people around the world. Of course, we know that God is love and God has enormous love and patience for us, but we can certainly improve in this area. Listen to one author's advice. He writes, I dare you to pray without using the word bless 
or lead, guide, and direct, or help so-and-so, or thy will, or each and every, or any number of those institutionalized, galvanized terms, I dare you. Have you ever listened to a new Christian pray? In fact, there's a good homework assignment for you. Find somebody who just got saved recently and pray with them. And just be refreshed because they don't have any baggage at all. They haven't learned the ropes yet. They haven't learned that new language that Christians learn eventually, Christianese. It's just normal, natural from their heart as if God were truly their friend. I remember one time I spoke back for a fellowship in Manhattan, New York City. It was at a uh, retreat center, I think, in New Jersey on the shore. This young man introduced himself as a member of the fellowship. I think he was an iron worker in New York. Recently got saved. And he was troubled about an issue. And I said, let's pray. So I prayed. And then he prayed. And it was so cool because it was what you'd expect an iron worker in New York who just got saved to pray like. Lord, yo, I need your help like now. And I thought, that's cool. That's from his heart. Now, Jesus has already mentioned in this upper room discourse prayer before. He's talked to them about it. But he expands on it a little more in the last few moments that he has together with his disciples, presumably on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe at this point crossing over the Kidron Valley. And he expands on the communication that they will have with God, their Father, because everything is about to change. Jesus will be leaving. Their relationship will be different. Jesus won't be there when they wake up in the morning. They can't ask Him questions as immediately as they have been. Uh, They won't have Jesus appearing suddenly on the lake when there's a storm like He had in the past. So they need to learn to use this hotline to heaven called prayer. Let's look at our text. Verse 23 we looked at in part last week. But pick it up in that second sentence. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly, and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? As I read and reread what we just read, as I did it this week, there's a few things that just stuck out at me, struck my attention. 
And first of all, it's the candidness of prayer. That's what I've called it in your outline. It was a very candid invitation that Jesus gives. Look at the word ask. I was intrigued by that. I counted five times that it is used in our text. Jesus used it five times. Ask. It simply means to request something from somebody superior. Why did Jesus mention ask when he spoke about prayer? Simply, I believe, because that's what most of us do. That's what most of us do. On a normal day, if you're a normal person, you ask God for stuff, for some issue. Now, that's not all of what prayer is, and certainly there is to be a balance of intercession and worship and supplication and thanksgiving, all of that. But Jesus recognized, for the most part, that is the bulk of our prayer life. And he said to do it. He didn't chide them for it. He didn't rebuke them for it. He didn't say, you know, you disciples are so selfish. All you do is ask, ask, ask. Don't do that. He invited them to, he commanded them to ask. I love what George Mueller, and if you know who he was, he has a great man of faith years ago in Bristol, England, and by faith started an orphanage feeding hundreds of children at a time. God answered his prayers, and on one occasion he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Rather, prayer is laying a hold of God's willingness. And he is willing that you ask. Now, remember in the life of Jesus how the disciples asked him things in a very normal, natural kind of a manner. These weren't deep questions. These weren't profound theological questions. It was just disciple stuff, what you'd expect a fisherman to ask. The first question I found in the Bible is, the disciples asked Jesus, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. Or on one occasion, if they didn't understand something, what did you mean? Or when there was a lunch crisis, the disciples asked Jesus, what are these loaves and fishes among so many? Or once in Samaria, a couple of the disciples asked Jesus, would you like us to call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and kill everybody? See, these were not very insightful, profound, enlightened questions. But they asked Jesus that stuff. They're normal, conversational questions, and that is the whole point in what we just read. Notice in verse 23. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Just like you have been asking me questions, you can ask the Father those questions when I'm gone. And I think the point here is that our prayer ought to be as normal and simple and natural as speaking. You don't need some special words with some special voice. It doesn't have to sound something like, Dear God, as Thou hast manifested Thyself to Thine servants, we earnestly beseech Thee. I think if the disciples tried that, Jesus might slug them. Knock it off, would you? In fact, you remember what Jesus told them when He said, This is how you ought to pray. He said, Do this. Say, Our Father in heaven. 
Your name is holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And listen to this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Now there's something straightforward, simple, no fluff request. Why complicate it? Give us this day our daily bread. You can't get any more simple than that. Jesus said, ask. Ask. If a theologian would come along and rewrite the prayer, especially the part that says, give us this day our daily bread, it might sound something like, we respectfully petition, request, and entreat that due and adequate provision be made this day and the date hereinafter subscribed for the satisfying of these petitioners' nutritional requirements and for the organizing of such methods of allocation and distribution as many as may be deemed necessary and proper to assure the reception by and for said petitioners of such quantities of baked cereal products as shall in the judgment of the aforementioned petitioners constitute a sufficient supply thereof. (laughs) I like what Jesus said better. Give us this day our daily bread. Anybody can do that. You see, prayer isn't a speech competition before the divine. You just talk to Him. You just ask Him stuff. You just unburden your heart before the Lord. Like, God, yo, I need your help. That's give us this day our daily bread. Something else stood out as I looked at our text, and that is the the capability of prayer. Two things involved in this. Prayer is capable of giving you access And prayer is capable of giving you answers. That's probably most of us do it. But go back to verse 23 and notice Jesus says, Ask the Father. Now follow this. This is important. Ask the Father. And then in verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from God. I don't need to talk to God for you. You can go to the Father because you have direct access now. You don't have to go through any channels, any secretaries. Why did Jesus say that? Well, there was a long-standing Jewish tradition that said pious teachers of the law could ask God almost anything and God would grant it for them, things that He wouldn't grant normal people, commoners. But because you had this special track with God, you were a special holy teacher. Of course, Jesus is the unique Son of God, but He is making a point that the Father in heaven is not a hard taskmaster, that you have to talk Him into things. He's not reluctant to answer prayer. God's easy to get along with, Jesus is saying. Don't picture Him folding His arms, scowling at you in heaven, saying, Go away, kid, you bother me. I can't talk right now. Go talk to my secretary and she might phrase it the right way. You can come directly to God. A great verse of Scripture to put alongside this is Galatians 4, 6. I'll read it to you in the New Living Translation. Because you are God's sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. It means Papa, Daddy. 
You have the right to be that intimate, a love relationship with the Father in heaven like a dad would have with his son or daughter. Abba, Daddy, Papa. Did you know that this idea was revolutionary in the ancient world? The idea of accessibility to heaven was unheard of. For instance, the Greeks had very many gods, but they thought all the gods were aloof, didn't want to be bothered, even hostile toward man. It's all mythology, but here's one of them. There was a god named Prometheus, say the Greek myths. Prometheus was the only god who looked upon mankind, took pity upon man, and as a gift to man, gave fire to mankind. When Zeus, the chief god, found out about it, he ordered Prometheus to be chained on a rock in the middle of the Adriatic Sea and commanded vultures to pluck out his liver because he dared to help man. The idea then grew that heaven was distant from the earth. There was no access. i got to say, even the Jewish nation put distance between man and God. In their own temple, there was a wall in the courtyard And if you were a Gentile, you could hang out in the outer court, but you couldn't go to the inner court because the sign on the wall said, Death to any Gentile who goes past this point. Then there was a veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And yes, all that was a part of God's institution in the Old Testament, but you know what happened when Jesus died, don't you? The veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. God was saying, There's no distance anymore. Come close. I'll be your father. You can have a relationship of intimacy with me. It's sad that history tells us the Jews came along and sewed the veil back up. Just like man to do that. God is saying, come closer. And we go, oh no, there has to be a distance between us. I love this. Jesus is saying, you can come directly. People still try to do this. They say, oh, you can't come to God. He won't listen to you, little old you. You have to go through us, our church. Be baptized our way, our institution. You have to pray to Mary first. She can talk God into it or a saint first. Jesus is saying, I don't even have to talk to the Father for you. You can come directly to Him in my name. When we take groups to Jerusalem, often one of our tour guides will give a long-standing joke that's been going on in Jerusalem. The Jews who live in that city say, although God will answer prayers everywhere, He'll especially answer prayers in Jerusalem. You ask them why, they say, easy, it's a local call from here. (laughs) God's everywhere, but this is where He really hangs out. It's a local call. Well, after the death and resurrection of Christ, your prayers are a local call. You have instant access with the Father. And so, you and I can come, as it says in Hebrews, boldly to the throne of grace. Did you get that word? Boldly, not timidly, not trepidously. Boldly stand before God. And some think, well, I don't want to bother God. He's so busy. You know, He has to like run the universe and He's listening to people like Billy Graham. Really important people. He's not going to listen to me. And so we often come really timidly, Hi God, I hope I'm not bothering you today. 
Charles Spurgeon said, Prayer pulls the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some will scarcely move the bell for they pray so languidly. Others give only an occasional jerk at the rope. But he who communicates with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. Now you're invited to do that, to come boldly. And Jesus said you can talk directly. So the capability of prayer, access, something else, answers. Answers. This is why we do it. It says, and he will give it to you. Notice he says, whatever. You see that word? He'll give you whatever you ask. Now, we read that and it sounds like prayer is limited only by what we would name, what we would ask, our ability to say, I want this or that. And so some infer, without reading the rest and other passages, infer, great, God, here's my Christmas list. I'm turning it in now. I want, I want, I want, I want all of it. I claim it all. But notice there are some conditions in prayer. Two that I have mentioned here. Um, First of all is belief in Jesus. Now you know most of the world prays, right? Let's just kind of keep this in our heads. Most people on earth pray. You heard some in the video. I don't pray. I don't pray. Most of the world does. And 90% of Americans, George Barna, the pollster tells us, pray. But in many cases, they've got the wrong mailing address. There are conditions. It might make you feel good to unload, but you want to get them answered, right? And so there are conditions for that. Condition number one, faith in Christ. Believe in who He is. Look at verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father Himself loves you because you love me, and notice this, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Jesus assumed that those who were going to pray to the Father are in right relationship with God through the Son. He's the one passing this information on. He assumes these disciples, that's the one he's talking to, are followers of Jesus. They believe in Jesus, in His person, His nature, and His work, that He's the Savior of the world. In fact, verse 27 and 28 form a beautiful nutshell of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ, the things that constitute what we are to believe. Look at that phrase, I came forth from the Father. Notice how that's phrased. Not, I was born in Bethlehem once, but I came forth from the Father. That speaks of His incarnation, His virgin birth. That's Bethlehem. I came forth. It suggests pre-existence. Notice also, and have come into the world. That speaks of his humiliation. Came forth from the Father, came into the world. He sacrificed his life at his death before his resurrection. And then notice the third. And I leave the world and go to the Father. That suggests his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation into glory. So, these disciples believed that. 
they believe Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is God incarnate. He's the one God sent to save people from sin. So the first condition of having your prayer answered, again, you could pray to a a banana tree and feel good. You could pray to anything you wanted to, but if the key is you really want to connect with heaven, you really want to get the prayer answered, you have to come as a believer in Jesus Christ, as Jesus being divine, the unique Son of God, the Savior, the one who rose bodily. That's what he's saying. Prayer, then, is a family privilege. A family privilege. You have to be a child of God. Now, I know, I can hear some people saying, well, we're all children of God. Everybody on earth is a child of God. Well, yes and no. Yes, we are children of God by creation. But not everyone is a child of God by redemption. That's what Jesus is referring to. There was a special relationship that the disciples and Jesus had. And that disciple is a child of God through redemption. The Bible says that, you know, over and over again. John chapter 1. But to all who believed in Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. That's the first condition. The second condition is not only faith in Jesus, but coming to the Father in the name of Jesus. That's what he says. He mentions it several times. You will ask the Father in my name, verse 23, and he will give it you. We've touched on this briefly in the past. We come and we pray in the name of Jesus. That is not a magical formula. That we just tack on to the end of our prayer so that we can get what we want. Like abracadabra. In Jesus' name. If I say that, I'm going to get anything my little brain can dream up. Nor is this phrase, this concept in Jesus' name, just a sign that we're done praying now. I'll say that at the end of my prayer so everybody knows I'm saying, over and out, I'm hanging up now. (laughs) It means far more than that, doesn't it? It means, first of all, that we pray pray based upon the merit, the reputation, the character of Jesus. If you were Jewish hearing this, you would understand what the term in the name of someone meant. It means you're carrying that person's character or reputation. And so that gives us access to the Father. That's why we can pray directly to the Father, because we do it in the name of Jesus, through His character, His merit, His reputation. We don't do it in Buddha's name. We don't do it in Muhammad's name, Moses' name, Mary's name but in the name above all names, Jesus, His character, His reputation. Let's say you were visiting London and wanted to stop by for tea at the Prime Minister's house. Or you wanted to see the Queen of England. So you go up to Buckingham Palace. And they would say, yes, may I help you? And you would say, I'm here to see the Queen. Who are you? I come to you in Skip Heitzig's name. They're not going to even open the gate of the palace. They're going to get you out of there so quickly. But if you came in the name of the President of the United States of America and you had credentials to prove it, that you were a representative or a liaison, you would have admittance. That name is different. So when you can come before the Father in the name of Jesus, there is admittance there. You believe in His Son. You've trusted His Son to wash away your sins. It's on His work, His character, His reputation. And so you pray 
not over and out. Not, I'm going to pray it and emphasize it in Jesus' name, then I'll get what I want. But I do it based on His character and reputation. It means something else. It means to pray according to His objectives. You know, when you come and you request, think of it in in ancient times now, somebody before a king or a, a court representative. When you ask, you request something of that person in another person's name, you're asking as though you were that person. This is something this person would ask for. The president is asking for this. So that means when you pray in the name of Jesus, you should ask yourself, is this something Jesus would pray for? Is this something Jesus Christ would want in my life? I'll tell you what, that's going to whittle down a lot of our prayers. Will this bring glory to the Lord? It says in 1 John chapter 5, we can be confident that He will listen to us whenever we ask Him for anything in line with His will. So if you start filtering all things through, is this something Jesus would really want? I remember a guy telling me one time that he was praying about giving up drugs. Lord, I really love drugs. And I pray that I just have a few more because that's what Jesus... Whoa, I can't pray that way anymore. It changes everything. That's the name of Jesus. And by the way, something else. Also realize that when you ask God for things, sometimes His answers are no. That's an answer. You might say, well, I pray all the time and it didn't didn't work. Well, he, He said no. That's an answer. What's wrong with that? You want God to answer your prayer? He answered it. He said, negatory. (laughs) Remember Jesus said, Your Father in Heaven knows the things that you need before you ask Him. He knows your needs. He'll give you your needs. He didn't promise you He'll give you your greeds, but your needs. He knows what you need. And sometimes He says yes, sometimes He says no. That's a good thing. Because you know what? He knows better than you do what you need. I love what Ruth Graham has often said. One time she said to an audience, she said, if God answered all of my prayers, I would have married the wrong man several times. (laughs) Now one final thing as we close. The consequence of your prayers. What's the result of all of this? If you're praying this way, you have a relationship with God, you're talking to Him normally, naturally, you're, you're asking Him for stuff, this open, intimate relationship based upon faith in Christ and asking in the name and character of Christ. Well, a couple of things. You're going to get revelation of God. That is, He'll disclose Himself to you. You'll have an understanding like you've never had before. And you'll be really happy, joyful. I refer you to verse 25 for just a moment. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. That means a veiled statement. I've spoken, I have taught to you things that are veiled. Figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. It won't be veiled to you anymore. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now now skip down to verse 29. His disciples say to him, See, now you're speaking plainly. And you're not using figurative language or a figure of speech. 
Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them with a question, saying, Do you now believe? Jesus knew, he was aware, that these disciples didn't always understand his teaching, what he was saying. It was veiled to them. Figurative language, as I said, means a veiled statement, something that is pregnant with meaning, but for some reason obscured. What was hard for them to understand now, later on after his resurrection, his ascension, as they pray, will be revealed to them. The veil will be taken off. They'll understand the ministry of Jesus much better than they do now. Their understanding will be enlightened. You may remember that Paul, the apostle, prayed for his audience in Ephesus. He prayed that the eyes of your standing, understanding, the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's saying, guys, I'm praying that you will understand what God has for you. Because you don't right now. But I'm praying that God will show you. And we can pray for understanding. When you face difficult issues, when you wonder, what does this verse mean? What does God want me to do? What is this spiritual truth all about? Ask God to reveal it to you. And watch Him do that. And then, we don't want to skip over this. If you go back to verse 24, the second part. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, if you've been with us through the study, this is about the third or maybe fourth time Jesus has promised a level of joy to these despondent followers of His. Joy that comes through abiding in Christ. Joy that comes through communicating with the Father in the name of Jesus. Your joy may be full. Listen to it in the Amplified Version. So that your gladness and delight may be full and complete. How does prayer bring joy? Well, the first and obvious is when it's answered. You pray for something and it works. You go, wow! God is at work. I prayed for that. Makes you really happy. That's normal. That's natural. But then also on a more personal level, as in prayer, you realize God is meeting with me right now. God in heaven is actually listening to me right now. I'm having an audience with God personally. It brings you to a whole new level of life. I've got to tell you, the most richest, or I can't, that's a bad way of putting it, the richest time I've ever had in my Christian life hasn't been at a Christian concert, hasn't been at a great revival meeting. The awesome, most awesome time has been those times when there is just the Father and I, and I'm pouring out my heart before Him. I'm ringing the bell in heaven. I know He's there. I don't know what He's going to say, yes or no, as an answer. But I know I'm communicating with Him. There is a level of satisfaction knowing that I'm touching the heart of God that is like nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing comes close. It all pales in comparison. Have you had that? It's like, you know what the difference is? The difference is, if, you, if you've ever been to New York City, right out in front of the RCA building on 5th Street in Manhattan is a huge statue of Atlas, bulging muscles, 
crouched down like this, holding the world, struggling to hold the world up. It's an impressive piece of art. One day I looked at that and I noticed it. And then just a few blocks away is St. Patrick's Cathedral, which has another statue in front of it, not of Atlas holding the world up, struggling, but Jesus Christ standing there holding the world without effort in the palm of His hand. What a difference in how to live. You can live like this. i got the whole world on my shoulders. <gasps> or you can go, Lord, I realize You've got it all in Your hand. I realize You have my life in Your hand. I trust You with my life now and my eternity. And instead of sweating it, it's... <sighs> so, in closing... You've heard this saying before. Prayer changes things. It works. It works. Far from being boring, it changes things. It changes the world around you. But also it's true that prayer changes you. That's equally as wonderful. Not only does it change things that you pray for, it changes you. As an example. Sunday, the sermon was sluggish. Was hard attention to keep. The theme was faultily chosen. It almost put me to sleep. Monday was blue with boredom. Tuesday was carnal by choice. Wednesday, my conscience awakened by pleas from a still, small voice. The prayer meeting left me uplifted, loyalty lingering long. Thursday, my heart was responding. Friday, his nudging was strong. I came to thorough repentance the following Saturday. I yielded in full surrender as all on the altar I lay. The sermon next Sunday was perfect, superb, and quite at its peak. Amazing how greatly that preacher improved in the space of one week. <laughs> what was the change? It was a change in the person, the listener, the heart. Prayer changes things, but prayer changes us when we contact God. It's anything but boring. Now my hope has been my prayer is that we would learn to shed some of those dusty, crusty phrases that we just kind of move into when we pray. We often just put our brain in neutral and let the hose run. You know what? It's okay. You talk normally to God, but just try refreshing communication with Him. Tell Him what's on your heart. Lord, yo! Just whatever is inside there that you feel. Talk to Him naturally, winsomely, intimately. And it's also my prayer that some of you would pray the most important prayer of your life ever, and that is, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins and become my Savior because I want a relationship with you. Some of you know a lot about God, but you don't personally know Him. And you know there's a difference. You're longing for something more. You want real relationship based upon the Savior. Let's pray for that. Lord, as we close this service tonight, we have lingered in Your Word. We have considered these phrases and these nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs. They're special to us because they're from the lips of Jesus. 
and written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these words live today. And we realize the more we study your book, the more we understand your will, the more apt we are to pray according to your will, and the more apt we are to see prayers answered in the affirmative. Because we're asking for things that Jesus would want. I guess that's what following you is all about, isn't it, Lord? It's really not about getting our will done in heaven as much as your will done on earth, starting with our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn to talk to you as a friend. You called us that, your friends. Lord, I pray that as we do, we enter into a new level of joy. And I pray that tonight you would bless some with the joy of salvation as they translate from knowing about you to knowing you personally. As they move from just becoming a spectator to becoming a participant in salvation. Beginning with the prayer that must be prayed before any other prayer is answered, and that is the prayer of forgiveness of their sin and receiving Jesus into their life. We pray that that would happen for some tonight. Some tonight.